Lord, we come to you this morning and we confess that our hearts can so easily be led astray, that we can fall prey to messages, to claims, to worldviews that, that entice our sinful desires. And so we so desperately need your word and your wisdom in our lives in order to discern what is right and what is wrong. And so I pray that as we come to your word this morning, as we look at these three verses in Second Peter, that you would um, use them to guide our hearts into truth, that you would challenge us with them, you would teach us with them, you would equip us with them in order to be faithful followers of you and to discern what is true from what is false. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen. Well, we are continuing in our walk through Second Peter this morning, and as we now kind of move into or step into chapter two of this letter, I want to just consider and answer two really important questions that may or may not be going through your mind as we, as we kind of look at this passage. But either way, they're good, they're good questions to ask. They're good questions to consider. The first is, how does our passage this morning, how does 2 Peter 2, 1 through 3, relate to the rest of 2 Peter? Uh, if you've been coming to Pennington Park for very long at all, even just a, a few weeks, you've probably started to notice that our typical method or, or style of preaching is going through entire books of the Bible at a time. And the reason that we do that is because we believe that the Bible is authoritative and it's sufficient for the Christian life. And so there's, there's nothing that we need to do in order to make the Bible more intriguing or more palatable for the Christian. All we need to do as elders and pastors and church leaders and teachers, all we need to do is preach the word faithfully as it's written by its authors who were guided along by the Holy Spirit, just kind of referencing that language that, that we talked about last week. But if there's any um, side effect or unintended consequence of that, maybe that's maybe consequence isn't even the right word, but uh, it's that we can come in week after week and we can listen to these individual kind of sermons, and we can actually start to compartmentalize these, these passages of Scripture that we are going through. Because, of course, in order to really effectively preach through entire books, we're, we're going to have to break down that book into more manageable sections so that we can teach them effectively. And so unintentionally, maybe we start to... Um, maybe think that what we learned uh, one week is not necessarily connected to what we learn the next week and the week after and the week after. You know, in, in one week, we're talking about uh, this ladder of godliness. Uh, and in another week, we're talking about uh, sort of the, the, the prophecy of God's word. Now we're talking about this topic of false teachers. And maybe we, we fail to really grasp how are those things connected. And we 
maybe become even lazy in how we, as individual Christians, really study and apply God's Word. And so I want to challenge us this morning, kind of push against that tendency, that as we move into now this new chapter, and we even do start to kind of step into a, a new topic that hasn't quite been fully addressed yet, I want to just challenge us this morning to understand that passage within its greater context, not to dissect it and kind of pull it out of that context. Because Peter is not giving us, in Second Peter, in this letter, Peter's not giving us uh, sort of a buffet of ideas and thoughts to kind of just pull and choose from. But instead, he's giving us what I would describe as a nine-course meal, right? I've never had a nine-course meal. But if you have, uh, you know that every single part of that meal is meant to complement and build off of the previous course. And so that is what Peter is trying to do in this letter. And that's how we need to read it and understand it. And so with that in mind, then going back to that, that initial question, how does this passage relate to the rest of Second Peter as a whole? Well, Chris uh, explained in his introduction to this series, which by the way, it may even be a good idea for you now that we're kind of coming to the middle of this series and the middle of this letter to actually go back and listen to that very first sermon in the series, because I actually think one of Chris's greatest gifts is opening a series and being able to really give us a strong framework of understanding a whole book before we really start going through it section by section. But in that initial sermon for the series, he explained that the issue of false teachers was really the primary reason that Peter was writing this letter in the first place which means that everything he's going to say before chapter 2 and after chapter 2 is going to be said in reference to that issue. That is the, the big topic that he is trying to address throughout this entire letter, not just in chapter 2 where it's more explicitly brought up. And so in chapter 1, he reminds us what a true Christian actually looks like. He gives us these qualities of a true Christian, and then he concludes by explaining what a true prophet of God looks like. And he's doing that not just so that we would know what's right, but he's also doing that so that we would know what's actually wrong, so that we would be able to discern between what is true and what is false. And then on the back end of this letter in chapter 3, Peter reiterates the promise of Christ's return. And the reason that he does that is because that was one of the very doctrines or the very ideas that these false teachers were seeking to undermine or challenge or even uh, avoid and leave out of their message. And so Peter is sure to kind of instill that promise, instill that doctrine in his audience as he's writing this letter. And so on both sides of this chapter, Peter is preparing his audience for and responding to the false doctrine of these teachers. So that answers our first question. The second question we should ask, though, is why should I be familiar with false teachers? What responsibility do I necessarily play? What applicability does this have 
for me as a modern day Christian. Maybe that topic doesn't seem quite as relevant to us as it did to Peter's audience, who was, you know, I mean, they were really genuinely in the moment being influenced by these kinds of people. But I think there are a few reasons we should be eager to understand the threat of false teachers even now. One of those reasons is to avoid becoming one, to avoid becoming a false teacher. Look at what Peter says in verse 1 of chapter 2. He says, But false prophets arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. In other words, the kind of false teachers that Peter is speaking against are not necessarily people who initially came in with the intent of spreading false doctrine. They were not outsiders that were, that were coming in with this kind of pre-existing claim or this set of doctrines that now they were going to try to convince this church of. But as they became involved in that congregation, as they actually were, were assimilating themselves into that congregation, their view of God, their view of the gospel and the Christian life became so skewed that now, although there, there seems to be a time where they would have said, yes, I am a Christian. Yes, I believe exactly what you believe. What's happening now is that they stand completely opposed to God's word and God's will. And so there's a warning for all of us in that situation that's being addressed in 2 Peter. None of us are immune to the temptations and enticements that a false gospel presents. All of us have the ability to be deceived by a false teacher. None of us are, are outside of that happening to us. And so as we learn more about false teachers this morning, I think we need to understand that, that one, this is relevant to us because there's a real threat against us individually, and we need to avoid becoming a false teacher ourselves, adopting viewpoints that would allow for our sinful desires to be played out without consequence, that we coddle those desires and begin to uh, kind of interweave them into our, our Christian doctrine and faith. Another reason we should understand the threat of false teachers, though, kind of related to that, is to avoid following one. So not just to avoid becoming one, but to avoid following one as well. This is why Peter concludes his letter with this charge to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's kind of the big, you know, message of this book. It's why we've named our series Growing in Grace. Uh, and so why is that so important to Peter? Well, look at the previous verse. It's so that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. So avoiding false doctrine and false teachers is an active process, not passive. We need to actively guard against being convinced by false teachers that what they say is true. And related to that, then, the last reason we should understand the threat of false teachers to avoid losing others to one. So we need to avoid becoming one. We need to avoid 
uh, following one, but we also need to avoid losing others to one. In fact, this is the entire purpose of 2 Peter. This is why he's writing this letter. It's a plea to those who are at risk of following a false gospel to remember the true gospel that's been revealed through Jesus Christ, that's been confirmed by the testimony of the apostles, that's been sealed in the canon of Scripture. And so what we're about to learn throughout this chapter is relevant because, just like Peter, we as, as parents, we as spouses, as friends, as co-workers, as small group leaders, as children's ministry workers and teachers, uh, as just church members, as individual Christians, we are going to have opportunities to speak into the lives of those who are being presented with false and destructive doctrines. And we will need to be prepared for that day if it isn't already here. In fact, Jesus, in in Matthew 24 and Mark 13, in both of those gospels, he promises us that false teachers will rise and threaten the church all the way until he returns. And so this is, this is a sure thing. This is something that we will have to interact with as a church, if not as individuals, and we need to be prepared for those moments. And so with those reasons in mind, then, I want to I look at our passage this morning, 2 Peter 2, verses 1 through 3, in order to better understand exactly what makes a false teacher a false teacher. And Peter is going to help us do that by actually giving several qualities that describe this kind of person. We, we won't spend a ton of time on each one of these uh, just for the sake of time. Uh, there are five of them, uh, but we will actually be kind of expounding on these. Uh, Peter, he's not just going to mention these in three verses. He's going to, throughout the rest of this chapter, really come back to them, expound upon them. And, uh, and so this will not be the last time that we hear about them. But with with all that in mind, then here's the first quality of a false teacher, according to Peter. They disguise themselves as a member of the flock. They disguise themselves as a member of the flock. So we've already seen that Peter describes these false teachers as uh, uh, coming from among the people, right? We've already hit on that idea. They've known, uh, or they're known, they've been known, and even respected or liked within the church. So these are, again, these are not outsiders, these are not strangers. But he goes on in verse one to say that these people will secretly bring in destructive heresies. In other words, false teachers do not brand themselves as false teachers. They would never describe themselves as being false teachers, as carrying in false doctrine. Their strategy is not to completely separate themselves from the set of doctrines and principles that are represented in the group they're trying to influence. Instead, actually, most of the time, it's, it's really the exact opposite. A false teacher is going to do everything in their power to convince others that they're actually very much in line with, they're very much a part of whatever group they're trying to win to their side. 
the last thing they want to do is vocalize any kind of division or separation that would potentially actually ostracize them, that would, that would separate them or distinguish them from their audience. One example of this is that false teachers will typically have several Bible verses to support whatever doctrine or, or ideology or principles they're trying to introduce. Or they use the same vocabulary as their audience. But the more that you talk to them or ask questions or learn more about them, it turns out that they have the same vocabulary, but they use completely different definitions. It's not that they're trying to disprove the Bible outrightly or, or discredit the Bible or tell you everything you've ever believed in is completely wrong. Turn away from all of it and follow me, the one with the real truth, right? It's, it's usually not that extreme, that blatant. It's more that they want to use the Bible selectively or they want to take certain parts of the Bible out of context so that their position seems to carry far more authority and integrity than it actually does. And that's exactly what this word heresy is getting at that Peter uses to describe their message. We typically interpret that word to mean um, kind of a very formal claim or formal uh, doctrine that, that stands very much opposed to an orthodox or traditional doctrine that's held by the church or, or held by uh, biblical uh, theologians or, or biblical followers of Christ. But another way the New Testament actually uses that word is to describe just a sect or, or a faction or, or a party of people that's created when someone introduces a new thought or a new perspective and then integrates that into a pre-existing viewpoint. And the result of that, just like the word would imply with it meaning, you know, kind of a fact or, 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 a, or a sect or a, or a faction, is that there is division that's created. There is a separation that's created. The group that did exist is now splitting off and creating different groups that kind of stand opposed to one another. All that to say, it takes discernment then to actually identify false teachers, mainly because they disguise themselves as members of the flock. They will not bear that title proudly of false teacher. Second, though, not only do they uh, kind of try to assimilate themselves or disguise themselves uh, as a member of the flock, but they also then deny Christ as Lord and Savior. That's the second quality of a false teacher that Peter gives us in this passage. In the, in the last half of verse 1, he says that these teachers even deny the master who bought them. And this is a very interesting statement, or at least I think it's very interesting, uh, uh, that the, the statement that Peter makes here, because if we read that just on the surface, kind of at face value, it seems like what he's saying is that there are people who have been bought by Jesus Christ, that's, right? That's a very salvific, very redemptive phrase that he's using. They've been bought by Jesus Christ. He's become their master or their Lord. But eventually these same people have now denied or stepped away from Christ in a way which would actually bring eternal destruction on them. And so the natural question for us to ask, if we're not asking it already, we should be, does Peter believe 
that these false teachers have essentially lost their salvation. Were they genuine believers at one point, bought by the blood of Jesus, but now have rejected Christ and consequently been rejected by Christ? Is that what Peter is claiming has happened? And the best answer to that question, I think, is actually offered by uh, a guy named uh, Dr. Tom Schreiner. He's a New Testament. He's one of my favorite New Testament scholars, at least modern day. And he's also uh, a professor at Southern Seminary. But he explains that when Peter describes these false teachers as being bought by Christ, he's not actually offering any kind of uh, statement on the legitimacy of their salvation. He's not necessarily claiming that, that their salvation was genuine. All he's doing is describing these people in the same way they would have been known within the church they're now trying to mislead. And then interpretation of that statement fits really well within the greater context of the passage like we've already talked about. We've already seen that these false teachers rose up within the church. In other words, it's very likely they would have made public professions of faith. Maybe they even would have been baptized in that church before the congregation. The members within the church would have described these people as followers of Christ. That is how they knew these false teachers. They were bought by the blood of Christ from the perspective of most that were in that church when they were first introduced to these people. And yet as time has continued, that initial profession of faith has now proven to be nothing more than words. There's been no true submission to Christ as Lord and as Savior. There's been no transformation of their heart that's led to holy and godly living like what's been described all throughout chapter 1. And not only were their lives not reflective of true and saving faith, but even what they were teaching now seems to challenge the authority and the lordship of Christ, which is something that uh, really is going to become clearer and clearer as we continue to read 2 Peter. And this is an important distinction, distinction actually, that we need to, to recognize here because we live in a culture that loves to talk in extremes that loves to engage one another with extreme language. If someone disagrees with you, the habit of our culture is to demonize that person by ascribing the worst kind of label, the most extreme kind of definition on that person that you possibly can, right? If you uh, are, uh, you know, if you more align with the Democratic Party, you are a communist or a socialist. If you align with the Republican Party, maybe you're a bigot or you're prejudiced, right? These are an example of two extremes that we love to put on people in order to completely demonize that position. And because that's the tendency, and, and I'm not accusing anyone in our, of our church of doing that, but it is a tendency in our culture. It can be tempting for us to fall into that same kind of rhetoric. And as we read Second Peter, then as we read the description of false teachers, maybe it can be even tempting for us that in those 
conversations that we have with other brothers and sisters in Christ, and we start to disagree on things that may be important to us, that, that may be in a biblical issue of some kind, that we can start to use extreme language and we can start to throw around extreme rhetoric like, well, then you're just a false teacher. Well, then you're just a heretic because you disagree with me about something that has something to do with the Bible. But I want to encourage us all this morning, this is a challenge for me as well, to resist that temptation and instead to use the same kind of discernment and really the same kind of standards that Peter uses here. These are not people that are just having differing opinions about the last days, for example. These are not people that are just having uh, uh, healthy conversations about sign gifts and whether they're relevant for the church today or not. These are people who have in both word and deed undermined the idea that Jesus is Lord. And for that reason, they will experience swift and eternal destruction. That is a false teacher. And related to a denial of Christ, then Peter gives a third quality of a false teacher. Their lifestyle degrades the gospel. Their lifestyle degrades the gospel. Verse 2 says, And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And so we're starting to kind of get this... uh, more complete picture maybe of what these false teachers were actually teaching. It wasn't just that they had denied Christ, but more specifically in their denial of Christ, they had begun to uh, preach a message and even maybe live a lifestyle that allowed for a sexual expression with probably basically no boundaries and no rules. And I think this is an incredibly... Um, relevant and timely situation for us to consider because most of us, if not all of us, know the kind of conversations that are happening right now in communities that call themselves Christians. That there are churches and denominations and organizations that are very confidently proclaiming that in the name of love, You can do whatever you want with your body. That because God is loving, because God loves you, you can live however you feel is best for you. You can live with whoever you feel is best for you, and he will be okay with it because he loves you. He wants what you want. And there may even be some of us in this room this morning who are tempted, who are wrestling with the temptation to follow that camp of people in order to indulge in the passions of your flesh, or even to affirm other people who are maybe pursuing an ungodly lifestyle. And I want to challenge you this morning with what Peter is saying in this passage. When you give up gospel living you give up gospel legitimacy. 
when you start advocating for a gospel that leads to nothing more than a free ticket to do whatever you want to do, even those outside of the church start to discredit the message that you believe in. They will blaspheme the way of truth. They will no longer take it seriously. They will no longer consider it to be of value or to be true. If the gospel you claim to believe in has no moral or practical effect in your life, then what good is that gospel? If you claim to know and to love Christ, but are able to live in the exact same way as the person who does not know Christ, who maybe even has rejected Christ, then what need does that person ever have for the gospel that you claim to believe in and that you preach to them? Even worse, if you claim to know and love Christ, but have a more morally bankrupt lifestyle than the person who doesn't know Christ, then what good is that gospel? What does that gospel offer to them? This is the level of significance false teachers can have, not just within the church. It's not just that they rise up among the people and they convince all these people to follow them. But a false teacher has the ability to influence even those outside of the church who are looking in, who are observing, who are waiting to call out hypocrisy when they see it. And when false teachers rise up and preach a false gospel that allows for living that would be completely immoral, that would be completely indifferent when we compare it to the world's standards, then the result of that is going to be that the truth is degraded and the church's reputation is lost. So false teachers disguise themselves as members of the flock. They deny Christ as Lord and Savior. Their lifestyle degrades the gospel. And then fourth, they withhold judgment in order to gain followers. They withhold judgment in order to gain followers. Peter starts verse 3 with the, with the warning, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Uh, Richard Bacham, who is another New Testament scholar, he has a a very poignant description of false teachers that I was reading this past week in, in a, a commentary on Second Peter. He says, they promise the people peace when God threatens judgment. That's one of the characteristics that he gives of false teachers. They promise the people peace when God threatens judgment. I thought that was a very good description of what Peter is describing here in verse 3. It's this idea of twisting the truth in order to offer the most attractive and marketable sort of product, even if that means excluding judgment that God warns of, even if it means leaving out very significant parts of God's revelation, they will do whatever they can in order to manipulate, to twist, to shape, and gain the most followers through it. In fact, the phrase that the ESV translates as false words, the way that they describe this message of false teachers, it can actually better be translated as molded or crafted words. 
In other words, what false teachers tend to do is not so much create a narrative. Again, they're not so much building this completely new set of doctrines or this completely new ideology. It's just that they take a pre-existing narrative, they take a pre-existing set of doctrines, and they start to reshape it. They mold it. They craft it. They revise it and twist it until it conforms and fits within their agenda. They emphasize one doctrine to the neglect of another doctrine. And this is why with false teachers, you can't just listen for what they say, but you also actually need to listen to what they don't say, to what they avoid, to what they seem to intentionally leave out time and time again. In this specific case, it seems that one of the the twisted narratives that these false teachers were offering was a rejection of, or, or a kind of a doubt of at least, Christ's return, since that seems to be a topic that, that Peter is, you know, kind of really emphasizing throughout several parts of this letter. He really wants his audience to understand that that is not just a theory, that is a promise by God that he will return. And of course, the implication is if you take away the return of Christ, then you can do whatever you want, right? If Christ isn't coming back, then there's no judgment, there's no consequence, there's really nothing to live for outside of your immediate pleasure. There's no, there's no goal or purpose you have other than to fulfill whatever desires you might have in that moment or in that season of your life. And the reason false teachers do this, Peter says, the reason that they, they twist and they manipulate and they conform narratives and words and even God's word is to exploit their followers for their own gain. That's what Peter says. That's the the kind of indictment that he has for these false teachers. Their motivation is greed and their means is lies. If you want to compare a godly teacher with a false teacher, you can think of it kind of this way. A godly teacher will seek to save your soul at the cost of your feelings. But a false teacher will seek to save your feelings at the cost of your soul. They withhold judgment in order to gain followers. And then finally, the last quality of a false teacher that Peter gives us, they are recipients of God's judgment. They are recipients of God's judgment. We see that promise given at the end of verse 1 and at the end of verse 3 in this chapter. And there's two things that we learn really about this judgment that is going to fall on these false teachers. One, it'll be swift in the sense that it will be sudden and completely effective. There will be no round two of God's judgment. When his judgment falls, it will be the full weight of his judgment. His condemnation will be swift. It will have full effect. Two, it isn't idle or sleeping in the sense that it is even now actively being prepared for those who will receive it. And so when we put those two observations together, that that it's swift, that it's not idle, it's not sleeping, here's what I think we get. God's judgment is sure. It will take place. It is not an educated guess. It is not a theory. It is a promise. It will happen. Now, as depressing or violent of a note that may 
seem to be to kind of end on this morning. There's actually an encouragement that is implied in all of that. It's that whatever kinds of evil we're experiencing in this life, whatever opposition we're seeing toward the gospel in our world right now is not going to have the last word. Just like we do not live as though this life is the pinnacle of glory, we also do not live as though this life is the pinnacle of justice. And so whatever does happen in this life, whatever judgment we do see on this side of our existence, we can rest in the knowledge that God will enact judgment on those who stand opposed to his purposes and his people. In fact, next week, as we continue in verses 4 through 10, we're going to see that if history proves anything, if the redemptive arc of Scripture shows us anything, it's that God knows how to rescue the godly and judge the unrighteous. And so as we continue to live faithfully in fulfilling God's mission, as we continue to discern false teachers from sound doctrine, we can also rest in the knowledge that God is going to make everything right that was ever made wrong. He's going to restore everything that has been used to exploit the innocent. He is going to reform and reshape every twisted and manipulated word that was used for the benefit of other people. And he's going to do all of that in order to take the glory away from those who tried to steal it. And he's going to give it all back to himself. And friends, I long for that day. I hope you do as well. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you so much that you are clear on what is true, that you do not leave us to our own devices. You don't leave us to our own inklings or feelings that can so easily be tossed and turned, that can be thrown around like the waves of the sea. But Lord, you have revealed yourself to us through your word. And so I pray that we would be good students of all of it, not just parts of it, not just the, the areas that seem to support what we want, but that we would look at your character, at your plan, at your will, at the story that you are shaping through this life, through this universe, and that we would submit to you as the true Lord and King. That your ways are, are higher than our ways. Your thoughts are so much greater than our thoughts. And so we trust in whatever you call to be true, whatever you call to be right, we trust that that is true, that that is right. And may we never stray from it. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.